My name is Pastor Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now let me just say, let me mention this real fast, um, just to give you kind of a heads up. Part of today's message, we're going to talk about sexuality. So if you've got young ears in the room, I give you a, I give you a heads up uh, about that. I'm not going to be graphic, but we are going to be talking about a mature topic today for uh, a good, good part of the series. So it uh, might be a good time for a refill of the cup of coffee, so if you need that. Um, now, for the past several weeks, we have been in this series called Endgame, and uh, the subtitle is kind of Facing the Future Without Fear. And what Paul is doing in, thes- in this first letter to the Thessalonians is he's just simply trying to encourage his listeners. He's just trying to build them up and encourage them in the faith. And he does this by reminding them of the coming of Jesus. And uh, he does this um, by reminding them of the coming of Jesus five times. He does it in every single chapter in this, in this first letter. And so all of his teaching, all of his instruction comes right back to the second coming of Jesus. Now, I will just submit to you, the implications of Jesus' second coming are absolutely massive. They are absolutely massive. Let me just share one with you, okay? When you think about the reality of Jesus' second coming, I think the first and foremost implication is this. We have nothing to be afraid of, church. We have nothing to be afraid of. We don't need to fear trials and tribulations. We don't need to fear the government. We don't need to fear you know, an uncertain future. We don't even need to fear death because the gospel of Jesus saves us and is preparing us for the most glorious day in all of human history and it's coming. And that's what he points us to. Now, this is really good news when you think about it just practically because we live in an age of anxiety. We live in an age where a lot of us, a lot of people struggle with anxiety and struggle with fear. And what I wanna tell you is this, we have no reason to be afraid. We have no reason to be anxious because what we find is in the end, we win. We win. And so God wins the victory. He's, he, he consummates his victory and he shares it with his people. And so now we're going to get a little bit more into that specifically in, in, the, coming be, in the coming weeks. But let me just kind of share a little bit about what we're going, where we're going today. Now in the passage that we're going to see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, so go ahead and turn there. Paul is going to talk about the essence of the Christian life. He is really going to get right to the core of what it means to be a Christian. And that essence or that core of the Christian life is, is very simple. It's just pleasing God. That's, that's the core of the Christian life is simply pleasing God. And what Paul is going to say is your job as a Christian is to live for an audience of one, to please only one person. And that's what it means to be a Christian. You know, in the early 1990s when uh, President George Bush was president. His chief of staff was a gentleman by the name of John Sununu, and uh, he was the former governor of New Hampshire. And uh, so he's in charge of leading the cabinet. He's in charge of leading the president's uh, staff, basically. And so a reporter asked Mr. Sununu, he said, is your job difficult? And uh, John Sununu said, no. And he just said it so fast. And the reporter thought he misunderstood the question. So he asked the question again. He said, is your job really difficult? And Sununu said, absolutely not. He says, I only have one constituent. I only have one person to please. And that's the president of the United States. And so, church, let me just simplify the Christian life for you. It's not very complicated. You only have one person to please, and his name is Jesus. 
And that's what the Christian life really is all about. And what he's going to explain in this fourth chapter is really this. He's going to talk about if you really believe in Jesus, your life is going to reflect that faith and that belief. So, so out of that faith comes a changed because it comes a changed life. In other words, if you're going to talk the talk, there is walk that needs to be walked out. And that's what he's going to explain to us. And we're going to get into that in just, a little, little, in just a little bit. And let me go one more step with this. I think the key to facing the future without fear is letting your entire life goal and life aim be centered around pleasing Jesus. If you will do that, it simplifies your life in so many ways because, because you are living for the one who has promised to take care of you, to bless you, to provide for you, and one day is coming back for you. Can I get an amen to that? And I'm telling you, it just clears away a lot of the clutter when you focus your life on pleasing Jesus. So this chapter is so incredible. I think we need to read the whole thing. So I'm going to ask if you are willing and able, would you stand together as we read the word of God this morning? We're going to begin at verse 1. So Paul writes, finally then, brothers, we ask you, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion and passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this manner because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a, cry, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord Praise God. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. All right, I told you it was a good passage, so there you go. Um, all right, so, so here's, here's what he's talking about. Really, that 
What he's talking about in this chapter is just simply pleasing God. And I want to give you three truths about pleasing God today. And we're going to kind of cover a lot of ground today. So let's just jump right in. I want to give you first and foremost, the principle of pleasing God. In other words, what it means. And then I want to talk to you about the practice of pleasing God on the ground, what it looks like in ordinary everyday life. And then last, I want to talk about the, the payoff of pleasing God, the end game, in other words, all right? So let's look at the first one, the principle of pleasing God. So we go back to verses one and two for this. Let me just show it to you right from scripture. Here's the principle, he says, finally then brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, he says, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk. So when he uses that phrase walk, that's a metaphor for how you live your life. So what you think about, what you do, what you say, attitudes, your walk is just how you live your daily life. So we taught you how to walk and how to please God just as you're doing and so that you would do so more and more. Now, that's the challenge. He wants us, and he's getting right to the essence of the Christian life, to live a life that pleases God. That's what he's saying, and that's the encouragement that he gives. Then he begins to tell us kind of what this looks like. He says this, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, I have a lot of people, I've heard this so many times, people will mention to me, Scott, I just wish I knew the will of God for my life. Like, I just wish that I knew. And it's usually around... It involves some decision that they're making. They're like, what college should I go to? What should I major in? Should we homeschool or public school the kids? You know, should, should I take this job, this promotion, whatever? And so it usually has some connotation with some decision. Now, listen to me, church. You don't need to guess at what the will of God is because he has already shown us his will. He's already taught us and shown us his will. And his will for you is sanctification. That's his will for you. That's exactly what he says. And so in other words, very practically, if you will make first things first, if you will make God the main thing, second things and third things and fourth things will fall right into place. If you'll just focus on that main thing, that's, that's how you know the will of God. Now, what is sanctification? I know it's kind of a big, kind of a big theological term, but let me, just, let me just kind of simplify it for you. Really, sanctification means to be set apart for a holy purpose. That's all sanctification means. It means to be holy. It means that it's, it's set apart. And uh, a life of, that is set apart is a life pleasing to God. And so, and so if you think about it, this podium is it's an instrument and it's set apart for a holy purpose. It only does one thing, Right? And it does it very well, does a great job of it every, every single week, uh, helping us uh, preach week in and week out. So just think of your life just like this podium, set apart for a holy purpose. That is God's will for you. That is what God wants for you. And if you will take care of that, he will take care of everything else. So let's, let's, let's talk about this a little bit more. You remember back in chapter one where he said, you know, the gospel come, came to you in word, but it also came to you in power. Do you remember when he mentioned that? And so what he's talking about is the gospel is a message. It's the message of what God has done through Jesus Christ. But it also is, it reminds us that the gospel is a power and the power comes to us. 
Gospel power is when God puts his love into our hearts and it changes us on the inside. Let me show this to you from Romans 5, 5. Paul writes this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So when God puts his love into our hearts, he does it through the Holy Spirit. He does this at the moment of salvation. And what happens is he brings this inward change. And this inward change is called new birth. And there's a fundamental change that happens within you and me. We have the love of God inside of us. And a part of that new birth is the fact that what God does in that work is he sets us free from sin. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to live a sinless life. It just means for the first time, we can now live a life pleasing to God because we have been born again. God has put his love into our hearts and it changes us on, on the inside. And that's, what, that's the gospel power that Paul was referring to in chapter 1. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. He's talking about working that out and living that out. Now, when you think about it, you ask the question, well, what's the end game for God putting his love in our hearts? And the end game is really simple. He wants to make us like Jesus. So the father puts his love into our hearts and changes us and begins a work in us. And that work is the work of making us look like Jesus in character. All right? Now, We'll just kind of drill down on this a little bit more. How do we know what God is like? How do we know that? Well, honestly, we know from the word. So God has revealed to us what he's like because he's revealed to us in his word what he is like. We know that God is a God of grace because of what he did for the Israelites, setting them free from slavery in Egypt. He's a God of grace. He did that not because the Israelites were great, but he did it because he is a God of grace. He set them free. But we also know that God is a God of holiness. He's a God of purity. Because what we know is God gave Moses and the Israelites the law, the Ten Commandments. And he said, I want you to tell the people to live by this law. And if they do, it will be a blessing to them. Like they won't kill each other. You know what I mean? If you just follow, I'm going to establish a community of faith and laws to live by. And, and so I want you to live by these laws because it will be a blessing to you and you'll actually learn to love each other and get along. And so we know that God is a God of holiness. We also know that God is a God of steadfast love. Like, he's, like we, we sang about a little bit earlier, God is faithful. He's faithful. And so what we find throughout the Old Testament over and over again is when the people of Israel were unfaithful, God was always faithful. Now, you fast forward to the New Testament. How do we see this work out? How do we know what God is like in the New Testament? Well, we know through Jesus. Because Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so what was Jesus like? Well, they brought to him a woman caught in the very act of adultery. And um, he says to her, is there no one here to condemn you? Neither do I. Go leave your life of sin. And so we know that Jesus is reflecting the character of God, the grace of God. We also know that God is a God of power because it was, he was in the boat with the disciples. You guys remember this? And so there were these, this huge storm that came up. What did Jesus do? 
He told the wind and the waves, sit down and shut up. That's what he did. And the disciples were amazed. They're like, man, even, even the wind and the elements obey him. And uh, so we see what God is like. And, so, and then Jesus comes along and he reveals how, how God loves his enemies. Because he's hanging on the cross. They've beaten him. They've scourged him. They've, they've spit on him. They've made fun of him. And what was the prayer of Jesus for his enemies on the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So you really begin to see this portrait of the character of God. Let me tell you something, church. What God wants to reproduce in you is that very same character. And he does it by putting his love into our hearts. Isn't that amazing? You've heard the phrase, right? Like father, like son, or like mother, like daughter. You've heard that? What is that referring to? It's referring to family resemblance, isn't it? And so when somebody says that, you know, they see me and my sons, it pleases me. It does. Now, where does that come from? It comes from God. Because God wants his sons and daughters to reflect his image and likeness. He wants us to reflect the character of Jesus, and that is pleasing to him. And so when we set ourselves apart, I'm bringing this full circle now, when we set ourselves apart for God, we begin to live that life pleasing to God because that character is being reproduced within us. I I love C.S. Lewis. You guys know that. And uh, there's a quote that he had where he he was talking about, we often think that Christianity is, is obeying a certain set of rules and regulations. But he said, that's not Christianity. I mean, we think it is, but it's a mistaken notion. What he says is what God really wants is a particular kind of people. That's what he wants. People that reflect the character of his son, Jesus. And that's what he's doing in me and in you. Now, what does this look like practically? So the principle of pleasing God, how do we how do we do that? What does that look like kind of just practical? Well, I'll tell you what it kind of looks like for me. It is uh, every morning when I get up, I need to get on my knees before God and pray. I need to get into his word. And I need to come back to every single morning, God, I consecrate, I set my life apart for you and for your glory. I don't know if you experience this. I know I do. When I go to bed, I know exactly who I am. But when I wake up in the morning, I have no idea who I am anymore. So I have to come back to, God, I yield myself to you. I consecrate everything that I am, everything that I'm not, everything that I hope to be. I lay it at your feet. And I just want to please you today. The reality is, church, is I don't, I, don't, I don't always get it right. The reality is I pray that and then I mess it up that same day. But you know what? You go right back to the grace of God. You, you get that right and you get right back up. And so it's not something that I have to do. It's something that I want to do. Because God's love has been put in my heart. I do that because I love Jesus and I want to become like him. Now, that is what he's talking about there. Now, what about the practice of pleasing God? Okay, It's interesting because as I was looking through this chapter, 
he's talking about pleasing God and then he works it out practically in three very specific areas in the, in the rest of the chapter. So he talks about sexuality and he talks about work and he talks about death. Now, for the sake of time, I can only, I can only deal with one of those, okay? So we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about sexuality. You know, uh, the three most popular preaching topics in a church, you know what they are? End times, sex, and then will there be sex in the end times? So that's kind of the... <laughs> so we're going to hit two out of three, all right, today. Um, so let's, let's talk about sex. So, so what he's doing here is this. I want you to be pleasing to God in the area of sexuality. That's what he's saying. I want you to be sanctified in the area of your sexuality. There is not a more relevant topic that I could be preaching on today. Would you, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Do you know, over the last 10 years, well, actually, I mean, we are right in the middle of a sexual revolution, a cultural and sexual revolution that's going on um, all around us. We have seen in the last 10 years, this is how fast things are moving, the redefinition of identity, gender, sex, and marriage just in the last 10 years. We are going through unprecedented change. And I want to just say, church, we need to be anchored in something that's eternal and lasting. We need to be anchored in the word of God. So let's look at what he says about this whole area of pleasing God, the practice of pleasing God in the area of sexuality. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. All right? Now, notice what he doesn't say there. He doesn't say abstain from sex. He doesn't say that. What he says specifically here is to abstain from sexual immorality. Why doesn't he say abstain from sex? Well, the answer to that is because, really, we see this over and over in Scripture, is because sex was God's idea. Sex is good. Sex is a gift from God. It is a a blessing from God. Sex is totally and completely God's idea. He created it. He owns it. It's good. And the Bible absolutely, consistently, without fail, Genesis to Revelation affirms this. I mean, you should, you should if you haven't read the Song of Solomon, you should, you should read it. There are certain sections of the Song of Solomon and Proverbs that are so graphic, it'll make your eyes wide. You're like, what are they talking about here? Uh, now, don't go reading it right now. Put, you know, don't do that. Uh, just read it a little bit later on tonight. So, um, honestly, the Hebrews would not let their kids read the Song of Solomon until they were engaged, for obvious reasons. So, uh, you, should, you should read it. Now, what Paul is saying here is this, that sex within God's boundaries, sex within God's parameters, is really, really good. It is a blessing from God. In fact, specifically what I think he's implying in, in, in this passage is this, that sexuality within the boundaries of God that he's established is a means towards your sanctification. It's an actual way of growing in Christ-likeness, of living your life pleasing to God. When we live 
sexually within the boundaries that God has set. That is how holy and that is how good sex is. But, and you knew there was a but coming, sex outside of God's boundaries undermines sanctification in your life. It undercuts God's, um, your closeness with God. That's what it does. So, so there's certain boundaries. Now, let me just say this. You know, as we think about this topic of, of sexuality, and there's not a more, you know, there's not a topic that's more charged today than, than this one. I think we've got to avoid two different extremes when it comes to this. I, I think we have to avoid underrating sex and overrating sex. And what I mean by underrating sex is some people seek to debase sex. There are certain churches, fundamentalist churches that you could go to, um, where they have a biblical perspective about sex, but the undertones for how that's communicated is negative. All of those under, undertones are negative. And so it's, it comes across like something dirty or you know, something kind of disgusting. That's not true. It's created by God. And you need to understand it from that perspective. On the other hand, and what we see prominently in, in the world today and in, in, our, in American society specifically, is that sex has been overrated. Sex is worshipped. Sex has been deified. Uh, we, com- we communicate about sex today that sex is really something that we worship, that it's, it's really been something that we've, tur- we've turned into God. Now, you know, as we kind of think about the city of Thessalonica, as we think about Corinth, as we think about Ephesus Church, they, they worship sex too. Because in the middle of those metropolitan areas, they would have pagan temples where you would go and worship pagan gods and they would have temple prostitutes there that offered themselves a part of the religious ritual. And so that is very common in this day. In, the, in Bible times. And so American culture is right back there, but just in different ways. We've made sex ultimate today. We've made it a God. We've overrated it, in other words. You know, the longtime editor of Cosmopolitan magazine, her, her name was Helen Brown. This was a number of years ago. Somebody asked Helen Brown, what are the three best things in life? And her answer was, number one, sex. And then the reporter asked, well, what's two and three? And she said, I don't know. I don't know. That was her way of saying sex is ultimate. Sex is the best thing in all the world. And so that's where our culture is today, as we, as we all know. What we are told today from society, from social media, from movies, from TV, from, you know, from all, all aspects of life is, is really the key to happiness is you living sexually unrestrained and unrestricted in every way. That if you're going to be happy, you need to express yourself sexually. That's the message that we are bombarded with every single day. And so we hear this over and over again. That idea comes from two men in particular Jean Rousseau was a philosopher in the 1600s and Sigmund Freud. Those two men, even though they're dead today, are driving the sexual revolution that impacts our life every single day today. And basically they said that sexual desire is ultimate and you should sell out to it. It's the key to your happiness. Now, from a biblical perspective, the Bible says sex is good, but it's not God. 
The Bible teaches God is God, that God is ultimate, and that we should use it to please him and glorify him. Now, how do we use it in a way that pleases God? Well, it's real simple, and the Bible is very consistent about this. The answer is marriage. Marriage. Um, basically, you could say, say it this way. Um, marriage is the only place where sex works. It's the only place, and that's what we see in the Bible. But don't take my word for it. Let's look at what the Bible actually says. Look at verse 2 with me again. He says, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So he's sourcing his teaching. This is, this is what Jesus gave us to give to you. This is the will of God, your sanctification, being set apart for a holy purpose, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, that word immorality is the Greek word porneo, and it means the misuse of sex. It means sex outside of marriage. And so what Paul is laying out here is this, and this is the, this is the clear teaching from, from Scripture, that sex is not for before you're married. It's not for that. You may be in love. You may know who you're going to marry, but sex is not for that. And sex is not for outside the marriage. It is only for inside the marriage. That's what he's saying is he's saying, I want you to live a life pleasing to God, set apart for God by engaging in sex only in marriage. Now, here's the question. I, you know, I have to deal with this one today. Um, well, what about gay marriage? It's a good question. Obviously, the Supreme Court ruled in, in um, 2015 that states have to recognize um, same-sex marriages. And so that's the Supreme Court ruling. But here's, here's what I want to just submit to you humbly today. And I know my opinion is in the minority, but I'm just telling you what the Word of God says, okay? All right, so this is what the Word of God says. Gay marriage is not marriage. It's not. You see, God created marriage, and only God gets to define it. And he did it long before the Supreme Court was even thought of. And so that's just the truth of God's word. And that's what we need to anchor in. You see, God has defined marriage as a covenant union for life between a man and a woman as husband and wife. That's marriage. And so a gay couple exchanging vows is not a marriage. And the reason why is because a marriage is made in heaven. A marriage is the joining together by God. It is, it is the joining together of God, uh, of one man and one woman in a life, um, for life in a covenant. Let me, let me show you Jesus' teaching on this. This is Matthew 19. This is what Jesus says. Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them uh, from the beginning made them male and female? You see the binary there? That's part of the creation of God, and God says it's good. He created them male and female. Therefore, because of that binary, totally connected to what he's created, male and female, equal genders, but different. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So that they're no longer two, but one. That oneness is marriage. But notice where the oneness comes from. What therefore God has joined together, look at that, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, 
do you know what makes a wedding so incredible? What makes a wedding so incredible is it's a supernatural event. Because it is God joining a male and a female together as husband and wife. The two become one. It's not the pastor joining them together. It's not the bride and the groom coming together and joining themselves. God is doing a mysterious supernatural event and he does the joining together. And it happens right in front of your eyes. The two become one. And so the pairing of two men, the pairing of two women is is a, a joining that's not made in heaven. It's not recognized by God. So homosexuality is just sex outside of marriage. And what Paul is simply saying here is this, abstain. Abstain from sexual immorality. Now, specifically, I think what's happening in this chapter is he's talking to men. I think he's calling the men out. And I'll tell you why, because I one commentator went into this, and, and uh, this is really interesting. In the Roman Empire in that day, it was very common. Most men who were married were having sex with three to four women. And that's so common. It was so normal. So, so a, Roman, a Roman guy would be married. So she would be the mother of his children. And then he would have a mistress on the side. Then he would have a concubine a servant that he would be having sex with. And then there were the temple prostitutes and then prostitutes in general. And so, and so that was what's going on. A, a normal average guy in Roman society had his wife, had a friend, had a servant, and had a hired hand. And what Paul is saying in this passage is this, if you're in Christ, you're done with that lifestyle. That's over. There'll be, there'll be no more with that. The woman that is your wife, the mother of your children, your companion and best friend is the only one you have sex with. That is the life pleasing to God. That's what he's saying in this passage. Now notice, notice how he unpacks this because he says this. He says, for this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness there's that word again, being set apart. You know how to control your own body in holiness and in honor, not in, notice the contrast, the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so the Gentiles just kind of saw themselves as a piece of meat. They saw themselves as, you know, sexuality is just recreation. And, and, so, and so what he's saying is don't live like those who don't know God. I want you to live pleasing to God. And, and those who live pleasing to God understand that you can't separate body and soul. You can't separate those out. And that's what's being told in our society. That's what, that's what students today are being bombarded with, that, that, that just your physical body is just a piece of meat and sex is just recreation. And, and what they're doing is they're separating the body from the soul. Church, listen to me. You're not just a body that has a soul. You're a soul that has a body. And, and so what happens is when you join sexually with someone, it's not just a physical joining, it's a spiritual joining as well. There's a connection to soul to soul. And, and so it's so powerful. It is 
It is so intimate that it has to be done within the covenant bonds of pledging love to God and to one another for life. Because what happens is there's a ripping away that tears and harms us and scars us for life. And so God actually gives us this this command because he knows that sex works best in marriage because he doesn't want us to get hurt. And that's what he's after. But you will never hear modern culture teach this because what they want is they just want you to express whatever you feel like because your feelings are ultimate in the cultural scheme of things. So, so this is what he is saying practically right there, how to please God, how to practice pleasing God just in your sexuality. So there are a couple other things we could say there, but let me just, let me just move on to number three. And this is really the payoff for pleasing God, all right? The payoff for pleasing God. Go down to verse 16. I wish I had more time on this, but I'll just, I'll just kind of whet your appetite. If you live a life set apart, for God's glory, and, and you're living in this way, what's the payoff? I think you have to ask that question. Well, we see it in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then he says, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So listen to this. So we will always be with the Lord. Now, do you know what he's describing there? I wish I had more time to talk about it, but do you know, do you know what he's describing there? He is describing your future marriage. You're engaged. We are the bride of Christ, and we are engaged to be married to Jesus. And what he's describing here is the marriage supper of the Lamb. So what you see in Scripture is this. This is the big picture. Scripture begins with a wedding, Adam and Eve, and it ends with a wedding. Jesus and the bride of Christ, Jesus and us. That's what he's talking about. And so so the good news, the payoff is this, that you don't have to live in fear because the one who's put his love into you is the one who's coming back for you one day so that you will be with him forever. That's what he's pointing us to. That's why we live a life pleasing to God because he's put his love into our hearts. And we just wanna please him because we're gonna spend all of eternity with him. And so practically what this means is this, if, if you'll repent of your sin and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you'll be married to Jesus for all of eternity. And there is nothing better than that. Paul ends, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, so let's, let's bow our heads and pray together. And, uh, and so God, we just thank you for the reality of your love for us. That one day you are coming back for us. And in the meantime, we just want to live a life that's pleasing to you. So we just surrender our bodies to you. We surrender our souls to you. 
Lord, thank you that you died for both. And so God, I just ask that as we live in this world that's just going crazy, God, that we would be anchored to your truth and to your love. That we would see ourselves as you see us, your future bride. We long for the day that you're coming. We long for the day that we see you in the sky. So God, just fill us now with your spirit and with your love. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen.